by some preoccupation, we just come back. But if something becomes truly problematic, the preoccupation, in a sense, takes over, becomes very strong. Typically, it could be bodily discomfort. It could be a very strong mood. It could be resistance to sitting itself. It could be fear, boredom, loneliness, anything really. If it's starting to become a problem, then staying with the breath, it's not that we drop the breathing and shift over to this object that seems to be, uh, have such power over us, some aspect of the mind or the body. We don't drop the breath, but as uh, coming from the breath as a kind of gateway, we bring attention to the problematic occurrence itself. So that if boredom has become extremely strong, oppressive, so much so that you're hardly with the breath at all, rather than trying to give yourself a pep talk to get you more interested, examine the boredom. Just very gently and in a friendly way, allow what we call boredom, that's just the word, but it points to some way in which the mind and body is. That's why we feel we can use that word. And as you breathe in and breathe out, give the boredom, give the physical pain, give uh, whatever it is, some acknowledgement, some attention. I don't want to give you an exact time limit. Please work intuitively. Sometimes just a few moments attention and it weakens or it thins out or sometimes just leaves altogether and then you can come back to the breath and you have a better chance of maintaining continuity with the breathing. So our main practice is this very same practice of featuring breathing. Only now we're opening the field just a wee bit so that if something becomes problematic we turn that into a meditation object itself. So the instructions are very brief. Evening out the postures, sometimes called rounding the mouth. What you do here is you take the four postures that make up our day, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. And often people will do this on a self-retreat. Yet it can also be helpful for beginners because one of the things it's teaching you is that it's possible to be mindful in these four main postures, which is really where we spend our life. So we do a simplified version of it. And if you were doing it, let's say, when you get home, uh, you might set aside a morning where you rotate through sitting, standing, lying down, walking, whatever sequence you like, and then just keep going, and you can do it intuitively. Sitting as long as you wish, standing as long as you wish, lying down as long as you wish, walking. 
And as you go through them, let's say if you do it for a while, uh, the message starts to get across to you uh, that these forms, like what we're doing, the sitting, the walking, being in a special hall, having a special cushion and so forth. By the way, for some of you, uh, a cushion might help you a lot. I've been watching your sitting. I hate to give you one more thing to purchase, but uh, it can help sometimes to sit. But what you can see is that the heart of the practice is, those are externals. The heart of the practice is that what comes before any of the forms is life itself. And there are always some objects that make up our experience, whether they're thoughts or sights or sounds or the feeling in the body or smells or ideas and feeling, uh, ideas in the mind, images. And you can learn to become mindful of that wherever you are. And so the real place of practice is not on a cushion or in a cave or in Asia or at IMS or all these places. They're necessary and helpful, don't get me wrong. But finally you see that the essence of the practice is wakefulness with your life, however your life is, in a particular time and place, and it's always going to be that way. So this simple movement through these four postures is a small contribution to that. To me it's very important because I think there are dangers in the contemplative life, especially if you're very drawn to retreats and very drawn to sitting quietly. And some of you may wind up with that kind of uh, attraction, which of course potentially is a wonderful thing. But also one thing that does happen, particularly to lay people, is that we create a dichotomy between the wonderful time we have on retreat out in nature, nice food, sitting and walking, peaceful, uh, silence, be total silence, and then we go home, you know, these people want things from us, we have to hold down a job, it's noisy and loud and dirty, and uh, we try to sit, but uh, children are screaming and uh, it's raining out, and there's always something. And so we create, the mind creates uh, a split between this place where real spiritual work goes on, could be Omega for you or IMS for somebody else, and then the worldly life, so-called worldly life. I think that's not the deepest way to look at practice. Uh, and if you're afflicted by what I just said, the truth is you can become uh, even more a misfit than you already are, and I don't know you. Uh, because now your life will be devoted to getting the money to get onto that great retreat and then you do the retreat and it's wonderful and then months go by raising more money to get to the next retreat and all you talk about is the past wonderful retreat that's over and the new great one that's coming meantime life is passing us by so but the heart of the practice is not an escape from life it's actually to, uh, particularly because we're lay people we're not living in a monastery in a sense, this is a kind of monastery. So we need to learn to be a little bit more bold, to take life on fully, to learn how to jump into life, to enter into it fully, and for that to be a spiritual practice. So learning how to keep mindfulness alive throughout the day is essential. Because I don't 
know you, but I'm sure, pretty sure, that when you get home, most of your time will not be spent sitting on a cushion. You have many other things to do. And so either we learn how to bring this sensitivity and uh, will, willingness to learn into our life as it is, or our practice will be very limited. It'll be just a, a kind of relaxation technique, which is helpful. I'm not saying it's worthless, but uh, it's limited. Okay, we've already done some sitting, right? And then we did some walking, and then we just did some sitting. Why don't we all lie down now? I know, work it out, you know, some way so that... <laughs> just lie on your back. If you have a medical reason as to why you can't lie on your back, then, you know, accommodate to your needs. It's very simple. There's not going to be any new instructions at all. All you have to do is make sure that everyone has a spot that we, you don't feel encroached upon. I think there's enough room for us all. Okay. Find what's uh, a comfortable position and let go. You can do it if you have to, sure. Close your eyes, I think that might help. And we're just going to be doing what we've already been doing. For right now, it would be being with the breathing. So please turn to your breath, wherever you've been doing that. And it's the very same practice. Being with the breathing, noticing how the mind gets distracted, darts over here, runs over there, gets fascinated with this and that, but you're not with the breathing. Now, of course, as, you, uh, as we widen the range of instructions, we've already done it a little bit today, and tomorrow, of course, a little bit more, when you lie down, you could watch the mind, you could just be awake and aware and have nothing in particular in mind, or with the breath as an anchor. There are all these possibilities. The main thing is that you can meditate while lying down. We don't do a lot of that on retreat because that typically leads to, as you know, sleep. But it can be used once you learn how to do it to go to sleep. I go to sleep following my breath or just being with the mind as it is. And when I wake up in the morning, the first thing that happens to me, I've done it so much that it's quite normal, is I awaken to my condition. What have I awakened into? What's the consciousness like? What's the body like? How am I beginning this brand new day? And you can use the breath to help you, of course. So for, for just a few minutes, if we could all just carry out the same practice we've been doing, only in the lying down position. Breathing in and breathing out. Giving full care and attention to each breath.
trying to keep movement to a minimum. But if you should move, please do it slowly and carefully with full mindfulness. Lying down meditation can be very helpful when we're sick. In the Thai forest tradition, you receive a tremendous amount of encouragement to practice with your ailment, to work with the discomfort or pain and the different mind states that accompany them in the lying down posture. So you can learn how to be awake. There's even a, a Buddha form that some of you may have seen called the Reclining Buddha. And one way in which the Buddha is lying down, the Buddha is doing meditation while lying down. Another way, depending on how the foot is, the Buddha is dying and meditating right into death. For just the next few moments, we can all silently breathe and pay attention. Breath comes in and the breath goes out. taking it one breath at a time and giving full care and attention for each in-breath, each out-breath, being with the in-breath just as it begins, moving with it, mindfulness accompanying it as it begins to operate and then it ends, it fades away or it drops off abruptly. And perhaps there's a pause, being aware of the pause, 
and then the out-breath starts, being right there with the beginning of the out-breath. Mindfulness being with that out-breath as it, as it itself concludes, fades away. And as many times as the mind wanders off, that many times we gracefully and without blame come back. Standing, we've done walking, we've been lying down. Now very slowly and carefully, especially careful to not get up too abruptly, each one of us being mindful, see how you do it. See how you get yourself up, how you raise the body up, and go right into the standing position. A few hints. Find a posture that's balanced so that the feet are not too far apart, not too close together. And when you establish yourself in the standing posture, go right into the Mindfulness of breathing, just as you've been doing, just standing and breathing. Allow the arms to hang or clasp them, whatever feels best for you. If you feel a bit disoriented or dizzy, it's okay to open your eyes. Sometimes just for a few moments is enough and then you can do standing meditation. learned this method of evening out the postures from a Cambodian teacher and the way they practice. They often do it on a self-retreat, as I mentioned. And you can do it when you get home, perhaps there's a morning and it's raining and you have some free time. Disconnect the phone and just move through all these four postures, working intuitively. doesn't have to be a schedule but maintaining the continuity of mindfulness. You can use the breath to help you, of course. So little by little, we begin to see that the art of mindful living is not really so much a technique or a method, even though to begin with, of course, we rely upon a lot of form, but it's more a way of living where you give a very high priority, perhaps the highest, being sensitive, attentive, awake, mindful, aware, whatever language you like, so that we live out our life more consciously. We learn, and it's out of this learning that we're able to liberate ourselves.
and breathing. Experiencing the breath as it courses through the body. Noticing if we slip off the breathing and become preoccupied with something and easing back. The very same method only in the standing posture. period of practice by once again coming full circle and for a very brief and concluding sitting meditation. Two thirty. Whether you're silent or whether you're position that feels as comfortable and as stable as you as you can make it. I'm going to be speaking, but please keep meditating. Don't look at me. It's not intended for that purpose at all, but rather to very briefly repeat a lot of what's been already said and perhaps add a few things. Probably we've all seen dogs run after bones. You throw them a bone and off they go, time and time again. These days, the bones aren't even real bones, just plastic. And some, a bulge and some blotch of paint makes it look like there's some beef on the plastic. Doesn't seem to matter, the dogs go running off. and come back and you throw it and off they go again. It's hard to imagine a lion behaving that way. Probably if you throw something, a plastic bone, they'll look at you. They want to know where it came from. I think it's not a bad image that to begin with in practice, which is for a while. You could say doggy mind is what predominates. You're sitting following your breath and the mind throws another thought out there and off we go, running after it. And there's a fantasy. There we go again, running after it. Some past memory, some future imagining. A judgment, a hope, a fear. 
And the lion throws it and off we go. One dog I watched started chewing on the plastic bone, and of course it wasn't very fulfilling. I wonder where we're running when we run after these notions, images, memories, and plans, speculations, conditions that have been in the mind, it seems forever, coming back over and over and over again. Are we that different from the doggy mind? And also, is there really any more nourishment in what we get from that activity? One kind of understanding that can help move the, this aspect of practice along quite a bit, this is called shamatha, or when it gets developed, you'll hear people in Buddhist circles refer to it as samadhi. steadiness, a clarity of mind. It's an absolute necessity in meditation work, certainly in insight work. One thing that can shift things in a direction that's very helpful for us is when we begin to see the value of all these mental productions. This is not to say that uh, the mind doesn't do some thinking that's actually quite helpful and brilliant and useful. The human race has done a lot of that. And, and so do we, as expressions of that, of humanity. But if you, you've already had a chance, you've been, even though the contemplation is officially to contemplate the fact that you're breathing, how can you miss the life of the mind? all these thoughts which go running after bones. Actually, the thoughts are the bones. We go running after them. Does it bring us peace? Does it bring us fulfillment? Does it bring us joy? Sometimes. But overall, I wonder, sometimes you begin to see that. You start to learn about the nature of the mind and to see these thoughts are mechanical, impersonal, most of them have been poured into us when we were born, our particular culture, every culture, conditions us. It gives us a whole set of thoughts and then our life unfolds and we have unique experiences. We have wounds and triumphs and so forth. If you look at the life of the mind, and starting tomorrow we'll be doing that more directly, but even so far I don't see how you could miss seeing the, how much vexation there is in the mind, turbulence. Sometimes it's lethargic, sometimes it's agitated. And when we sit down to follow the breath, all too often it chooses to follow in the old grooves running after this, running after that. Can we see that a lot of it is just plastic? There's no real nourishment in it, no matter how much we nibble. Now the positive side, and this is where, when this starts to happen, the practice can be helped tremendously, 
Here's this very simple activity, in, out, in, out, in, out. As the breath fills up and empties, as the lungs fill up and empty. Kind of simple-minded, pretty simple contemplation. It may not be easy, but it's simple. As it starts becoming more continuous, you may begin to see that there is real nourishment in this. Perhaps this is more like a real bone with a bit of meat on it. As the mind is able, with more continuity, to attend to the in-breath and the out-breath, the in-breath and the out-breath, What is experienced is some peace, some joy, steadiness. Perhaps you've already experienced some of that. Some of you have been practicing for a while, I assume you have, or uh, why would you come here if you hadn't gotten a glimpse of what's possible in meditation? Those of you who are new, you may have to be more dependent on faith for a while. Maybe what I'm saying is true, maybe I'm just deluded. That's for you to find out. It's not for you to agree or disagree with me. That won't help either of us. But to take up the practice and to see if just conscious breathing, to just bring attention to this very ordinary, essential human process of breathing, seems to do wonders for consciousness. As the mind begins to see the value, not out of faith or belief, but from actual experience, on its own, it more and more will prefer to spend time with the breathing rather than running all over the place. And the practice of shamatha, of samadhi work, becomes much easier, more graceful. It's not being done as a kind of drill but actually it's even joyful. You want to do it, you enjoy doing it. Just sitting and breathing quietly can be quite joyful. If you try to figure it out, there are explanations, I'm sure, psychophysiologically, probably neurologists and scientists are working on that right now. But you can know it even before they get their results. A large part of what happens as to why the mind becomes more joyful when it can concentrate is that it's trading in all of that complexity, so much unresolved stuff, old stuff, stuff that's not even here that we were just imagining, expectations, fears, etc., for something really simple. This has always been true, it's always been helpful, but I think in our time, where life has become tremendously complex, having a simple activity like mindful breathing can be tremendously refreshing. We begin to learn that 
Sometimes simplicity is really beautiful. Not as an ideology, but as an, a fact. And so the simple in and out breath becomes more interesting to us. Often, when we come to a spiritual discipline, part of our problem is that we have become too complicated. Because of this, somehow we seek complicated medicine to heal our complicated problem. It may turn out that something very, very simple is more to the point. More and more, as we're able to become absorbed in the breathing, quite naturally, we're thinking less. The two go together. That's part of why we feel good when the mind becomes quiet. It's not thinking. Now, there are happy thoughts that make us happy, but many thoughts don't. They're old wounds, they're fearful imaginings of what the future has for us. And as we become absorbed in the breathing, there's a respite from this. This isn't enlightenment that I'm speaking of. But it is a kind of happiness that's very, very important on the spiritual path. Part of why it's important is because it gives us a skill that then can be used to understand more deeply what we call insight or wisdom. It's useful in other ways. That is, once the breath is established as an object of attention, Thailand, they, in a forest tradition, they speak of the mind to be, begin with when we begin practice, the level of attention and concentration that we have available to us. And they liken that to being like a homeless person, no shelter, vulnerable to every thought and emotion that comes up. And then as the mind becomes more concentrated, they say it's like having a, a bamboo house. When you have no home, you're vulnerable to the elements, sun and rain in Thailand. Also, it's easier for you to be robbed. And as the practice, the practice of concentration deepens, it's like having a bamboo house 
later on a wooden house, and then finally a brick house. This provides us with an island, a kind of refuge, a sanctuary, that we can drop into to refresh ourselves, to give us new energy, to give us a joy that comes from within. And these are just some of the benefits that come from a concentrated mind. Let me give you a hint regarding how valuable this kind of joy can be. Very often, we look for happiness outside of ourselves. If I get this, if I go there, if I become this, then I'll be happy. If I attain certain objects, certain persons, etc. We all know this rather well. The joy that comes out of a concentrated mind differs from this in that it comes out of you. It's intrinsic. There's something in our nature that when we get concentrated, we feel very happy. And it's already the beginnings of a certain liberation in that we become less desperate about looking for fulfillment from the outside. It's not that we don't still live with people and appreciate them, as well as food and everything, all the other good things that exist in life. But we're less, we approach them less as beggars because we start to taste that there is an internal happiness that's ours for the asking. It's already part of our nature. It's an expression of our nature. And as the mind quiets down, we begin to taste that. Tasting that even in a small way can reorchestrate your energies in life. As we come to know a certain self-sufficiency and inner fulfillment, that really is our birthright. No one has been cheated of this. Some of you who are so new to this, perhaps you're feeling a little discouraged. You've been trying to be with the in and out breath without much success. Or you're wondering, why do it in the first place? I hope just these few words can at least give you some faith. Not forever. You need to taste the real thing. But in order to begin any endeavor, you have to have some faith, just to arouse the energy to set things in motion so you can find out if it's true or not. So please don't underestimate conscious breathing, simple as it may seem.
the Buddha took it all the way to enlightenment, according to the records that we have. Some of you seem to me to be settling into it. Uh, you may see me around. Uh, I am looking, but don't take it as kind of a, in a mean way. I'm just trying to see what's happening so I can make some useful suggestions, and I'm also doing it myself. Um, let me just amplify very slightly the instructions you have already had. It's the same instructions that some of you are in a position now where you can slow down even more, and you may wish to. And you see these are hand, these hands are feet. So this is how it can become. And even slower than how you're doing it. That means as the, the foot, leg, is raising up, mindfulness is along with it. Mindfulness is, accompanies it every step along the way. So the art is to put your mind in your feet or in the leg and foot if that's what you're attending to. Uh, if the breath helps you, the breath is just to coordinate. You, most of your attention is in the experience of walking, not the breath. You're not attempting to have as precise attention to the breathing as you would when we're sitting. It's just another uh, a helper. The main object would be the walking itself. And what you're looking for is nothing in particular but just the experience of walking, what it feels like as the leg raises up. To begin with, for many of us, it's good to just put your mind in the foot and just what does that feel like? Heavy, light, and as it moves and as it comes down. You can get very, very concentrated doing that. One way that is used in Burma that many of us have found very, very helpful is, let's say you have a period of walking. The first phase can just be, start off just naturally, attentive as well, and then slow it down gradually, and then finish up with very, very slow walking. But finally, as you get to know this particular form, you'll use it as you see fit. I think I've mentioned that. If the mind is dull or sleepy, you might want to move more rapidly. If it's restless, then the slow can help. But learning the slow walking is a useful tool. Learning natural walking, of course, also is. So whichever one you elect to do is fine. Now, some of you have had questions about when you start walking naturally, uh, do you have to coordinate the breath by the steps that way? No, you don't, because it's happening too fast. One way to walk naturally is just to walk and to be present, experience that sense of movement, and you can stay attuned to the breathing as well. Just feel the breath as part of the body as you move. But some of you are on the verge of being able to get a little bit slower and just to explore that technique and see what that does for you. Uh, so I would encourage you to try it. Okay, let's do some meditation while walking now. Be about a half an hour.
was a problem, and so you opened it up and observed it while breathing, or, or anything else that might be on your mind? Yes? Yeah. Can you hear in how you're speaking how much you want to be rid of it? Oh, I really want to. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things you have to look at is the, the aversion to it, how fed up you are, how much resistance there is, enough. Uh, that's really, in a sense, when you, the mind unfolds, and here's what we're calling dullness. I know it's a complex state, has all kinds of little things in it. But really, the dullness then begets aversion. I don't want this anymore. I hate it. Oh, no, not again, and so forth. So really, the mindfulness is of that. Do you see the difference? Yeah. At least in terms of words. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. But before we proceed, how many of you feel very sleepy or dull right now? Can I have a show of hands? And has that been with you through much of the afternoon? Okay. Let's try something. Uh, we can finish strong, perhaps. <laughs> Sometimes in Asia, your teacher will just scream at you when you get like that. Uh, but us being, we're more democratic. One way they scream is just ho, H-O. So I'm going to go one, two, three, and we all do it together. Ho. And don't forget about the silence now. Just <laughs> one, two, three. Ho. One, two, three. Ho. One, two, three. Ho. Good. Yeah. That's easier than being quiet, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> oh, now you see that? You can't please everyone. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, um, the many flavors of calm come out of this. The, but there's one main flavor for us. It's calm that has clarity in it. So if you, re, if you remember that, uh, there, there are all kinds of calm where it isn't really, it's an improvement, it's helpful, and after you get up you might feel more relaxed, and when you go to the dining room you, you, you feel better, so it's not a waste of time. But clarity is always important for us. 
So that at a certain point, <clears throat> the mind, there's no separation. There's a kind of calmness uh, that is extremely clear as well. Uh, let me suggest a pattern that seems to be, that I've seen over the years, in, that many of us have. When we're um, alert, we all do know what alertness is like, but it's usually during a time of danger or urgency, there's money to be made or fear or, you know, we're like this. We don't miss a trick, but we're tense. And then the weekend comes and then we understand calm and relaxation in the hammock with a beer, but we're not alert. And so sometimes as the mind gets quieter, it cl calm signals that hammock time. You know, it's not very alert, but it is calm. That's not too helpful. Uh, now, they're apart. To some degree, this may be our own culture, although, you know, this is a human, a human thing. But our culture is very, um, right now especially, for a while, has been that way, very uh, high-powered, let's call it that, and then high-powered relaxation or collapsing from the being, having to be so high-powered. Um, the kind of calm that emerges out of this is extremely alert. It's sort of like hammock and urgency come together. It's not urgency is not the right word. And in fact, the more relaxed you become, the more clear you become. It's not the more sleepy. But on the way, there are all these different... Uh, all you can do is come, is come back to the breathing. When we're doing shamatha practice, that's what we've been doing, you know, since... Monday, probably seems like a long time to you. Um, we have not begun Vipassana, strictly speaking, although some of it comes in anyway. You, you probably have learned things as you've gone along. You've had insights. We're not banning them. It's just that the uh, primary focus has been on, in, on uh, calming and steadying the mind. Mm -hmm. And when I did that, it became easier to stay with it. And then I started to visualize what antsy and agitated looked like and meant. And mm -hmm. I felt just turning and yelling and waving my arms around. And it's easy to Yeah. Did you miss the first day's instruction? Yes, I did. Right. Because it sounds, it's a different approach. It has its value as well but we're putting more of an emphasis on the direct attention to what's happening rather than uh, creating alternative uses of the mind which are helpful. It's not that it's wrong, it's just not what we're doing. But go ahead, please continue. When you say it worked, what, what do you mean? Yeah. See, here's what you need to know. It's, it's all right because it's a reminder to all of us. I would say this tendency uh, is hard to shake. It's for years meditators have it, even people who do lots of retreats. Our mind is really concerned with getting good states of consciousness, with getting good experiences, good sittings, uh, getting rid of the bad ones. Calm is one important one, and there are others as well. But that's not really the heart of the practice. The heart of the practice is it's not so much getting a particular state, as being able to be with the state that's there. 
See, that's the art. So you're not going to learn that art. If you don't learn how to be with your discomfort, your disappointment, your blah, blah, all of it, um, they're endless. there's an endless meditative technology that can counteract what's happening. Visualizations and so forth. And I'm not saying they're wrong, and there's a time to use them. Even here we use them. For example, some people have a tremendous amount of aggression and anger. And the instructions here eventually would be, can you observe that anger or that aggression? People can't. It's just too much. So we bring in something called metta, loving-kindness meditation, which softens the heart. Now, that does not lead to enlightenment. It, no, it helps dramatically, because if you're that angry, there's a limit to what you can do with all of this. And there are other meditations as well uh, that can be brought in to help out. But we only have four or five days and uh, if I can leave you with one thing, it would be the tremendous importance and help of being able to look life in the eye as it is. So you wouldn't be learning that if you keep doing what you're doing. Granted, you got rid of the antsiness. So it's one way. But what I would suggest is you observe what you're calling antsiness. Uh, learn how to relate to it in a somewhat different way. Please. I'm not sure if I was doing the instructions correctly, but I um, kind of observed since I arrived now that I found that I was very irritable. You mean the more you meditate, the more irritable you are? Well, little things, yeah. I yeah. Think it's like irritable. And finally, I just, like, just in the middle of one of the walking meditations, I just realized how irritable I was towards everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, some, some, go ahead. Well, I'm already, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes what happens is uh, people will say, uh, this meditation is making me more irritable, or whatever the quality is. It's not, you know, not limited to that. And perhaps, sometimes it may be. But very often what it is, is you're starting to see a state that has been with you a long time. You're starting to notice. That's right. Okay. So now the question is, do you have to get irritable about being irritable? Or can you befriend the irritability? Befriend it. And or is, oh, here comes it. See? Good. Yeah. Yeah. Look, as you begin to see your irritability, that's the beginning of the end. If you want to be peaceful and nonviolent, uh, if you just cultivate nonviolence, I think you'll find it limited. You've got to deal with your aggression. It's there. It, what you do is you're uh, wallpapering it over with, you know, may I be peaceful, I'm wonderful, I'm lo- may all beings flower, may we all kiss and hug, you know. That is great, and that changes your mood. But you haven't uprooted it. So both are useful. Both are useful. Uh, what to do about it? Nothing. You know, just if it's become a problem in, in the seeing here, I mean, in the being with the breath here, uh, can you, in a sense, slip in under it and experience the irritability as it is without trying to fix it? Don't try to turn it into calm as you breathe in and as you breathe out. Let me give you a, a, an image of the mind. 
um, until you see this for yourself, well, there's so many theories and, and metaphors for the mind, even within Buddhism, even within Theravadan Vipassana Buddhism, which is what you're learning, whether you know it or not. Uh, but I think all would agree that the original nature of the mind is luminescent and clear, boundless, no problems. Okay? But it's constantly being visited by all these different states, irritability, prejudice, annoyance, love, compassion, hate. They're just coming and going, coming and going. Now, we mistake that to be us. We identify with these states and, and out of that create a notion of who we are. We build a whole story out of it, a whole identity out of it. Even meditators do that. The process of meditation is seeing through all of that. Those are, in a sense, clouds that visit. And the journey is to come to a clear blue sky. Now, the clear blue sky is there right now. It's always there. It never went away. It never goes away. But we're not in touch with it because we have so many clouds and we're so attached to our clouds. We have some nice clouds, too. Do you see what I'm getting at? So here's why I say it, not just to be theoretical, but to give you one more concept, but, um, oh, here comes irritability. And they're like visitors. You know, uh, they're, hi. You know, eventually you develop that kind of relationship with them. And they lose, oh, here comes irritability. Come on and sit down, have a cup of tea. Irritability hates that. It just hates being treated nicely. <laughs> it wants you to feed it either by repressing it, denying it, or, even better, identifying with it and getting even more irritable. So the practice is, uh, there's a purpose to why we're observing this passing show. Now, I don't know if you see it as a passing show. It's a parade. Has any, think back to just today, different moods that you were in, let's say when we started the day, is it the same? Have you had any thought that's lasted the whole day? Any emotion that's lasted the whole day? Any image that's lasted the whole day? Is your bodily condition identical with the way it was this morning? It's all changing. Everything's impermanent. And we'll go into that much more uh, soon. Um, the reason I hesitate is I didn't know we don't have a full afternoon tomorrow. I just found out. Something called sampler. I'm not sure what that is. I didn't either, but I think I saw my name there. Um, what? 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 Are, what? Well, I'll find out. I think we. I think you're all going to be here, but other people will join us to find out, get a taste of all this. But anyway, what? Yeah. If that's what it is, it's fine. Yeah. Oh yeah. Instead, just have a regular? What? How many people would like to cancel out this uh, sampling stuff? Okay. That means what? We would have a regular full day. Okay, great. Thank you. I'll do that as soon as I can. I didn't know I had that option. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, treat as a Chinese restaurant? All right. Yes, what was I saying? Yes, no, uh, I think I'm finished. What I'm trying to say is, after a while, you see, as they arise and pass away, they arise and pass away, if you watch your mind enough, little by little, you stop getting caught so much, and you can welcome them. Oh, here comes uh, terror. Hi, come on in. 
sit down. I haven't seen you in about five minutes. Or whatever it is. Whatever it is. Loneliness. Okay. You start to see them for what they are. They're conditions. They're conditions of the mind. They're impermanent and they lack an enduring core. They're not solid. The only reason we experience them as solid is because we identify with them. We feed them. We give them energy. We'll go into this more. Probably tomorrow. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, wait, remember, right now, right now, we're just working on calming and concentrating the mind. But uh, the, the other part of our practice, which we will learn, uh, the breath will be like an anchor helping you. Uh, and it's kind of a gateway into whatever is there. So as you're breathing in and breathing out, which was the one you used? Okay, fear is a good one because it's a very important one for all of us to get to know. So when fear comes up, the art uh, vipassana practice would be to be able to not try to replace fear with courage or put up with it or cope with it or grin and... Nothing. Yeah, now, yeah, to just uh, enter into communion with fear. I'm intentionally using a very... Slow down, slow down. I'm intentionally using a very positive term. We don't want to, we like communion in a religious sense or with good friends, but why would you want to enter into communion with fear? Well, first of all, the fear is you, the awareness is you, and the breath is you. It's all you. And we're broken up into pieces. We're fighting with each other. So yes, the, the art would be to fully attend to the fear, to let it express itself, and to see its impermanent nature. As you begin to see its impermanent nature, you begin to see that, and here it gets a little confusing if you haven't studied any of the Buddha's teaching, it's not self. This drives people crazy. I can't help it. Um, what you realize, we take it to be self because we identify with it. If you identify with fear, then you've just made I am afraid. Okay, And then you have I am afraid and all that goes with it. Physi- you know, the adrenaline, everything. Okay, but as you become to observe it, you'll see that fear, like anything else, is a mind state that arises and it passes away. Well, that's what this is about. But, but sometimes the fear is very powerful and uh, we can't meet it directly, so we do other things. But uh, eventually that's what we're growing into. Now, the breath is is designed to help you. Uh, I don't know anyone who just loves to look at fear, just uh, can't wait. So the breath is like a good friend holding your hand, breathing in and breathing out. Uh, but when you begin to see what fear is, I think I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but all right, we'll just, uh, it's okay. The breath is there and fear comes up. As you get to know fear, you can get to know it like anything else. Look, if you want to get to know a friend, if you meet someone and you want to get to know them better, how do you do that? You have to spend time with them, right? You have to get up close. You have to listen to them. You have to tell them things. Uh, It's the same with your own mind. If you want to get to know your mind, rather than just use it all the time, or really be used by it, then these states that come up, you have to open to them. You have to find out what they are. Now, the word fear, F-E-A-R, Already, we're often running in the wrong direction. But when it comes up, you'll see that it's energy. And the energy uh, affects the heart, it affects the pulse, everything changes, the content of the mind, and so forth. But it's all observable. If it weren't observable, then this would be useless. What I'm saying is, it is observable. The other thing you start to learn, 
and then I think I we're getting it's okay it's like a sampler right yeah I'm catching on right it's a sampler of what's going on what's tomorrow what's coming um, a lot of times when you observe fear you can't miss seeing that the ground out of which the fear emerged was thinking so that you start to see that the mind is thinking about something happening in the future that's going to be bad Okay, and after a while you see that oh it's thought the soil that it grew out of was thought you look around all's well you're safe but the mind well you know the way social security is going you may be only 25 but by the time you're 65 or now they're talking about 70 there won't be a penny left for you oh my god maybe you're just in high school and you're already terrified you know hearing this on the news okay and so your mind is creating all kinds of turmoil for you now Often there's intelligence packed into fear. It's saying something's going on here. Maybe you should start a savings account, you know, for your old age. I don't know what's going to happen. No one ever knows what's going to happen in the future. Even the good old U.S. of A. is subordinated to another law that's stronger than the Congress: uncertainty, impermanence. Those laws don't get repealed. It looks like everything is impermanent. Whatever is impermanent is uncertain. But we don't get any education or training as to how to live with uncertainty. It's not now and then. It's that nothing is certain. It never has been. It might seem certain since the 1930s, 40s, you know. Yes, Social Security. But uh, that's really just a, uh, an eye blink in terms of the history. Everything is. There once was no United States. Now there is a United States. At some point there won't be a United States, obviously. It's, I'm not anti-America. I love this country. Okay. Just I don't want to feed certain kinds of tendencies. So uh, as you get begin to gain insight, as you observe fear insightfully, and one very good one is seeing that it's impermanent. Now what, would, what that would be like is simply the energy of fear emerges. You're with it. You're attending to it. But how can you do that unless the mind is trained? You won't be able to do it. That's why we're bothering all this, you know, walking and in, out and all that stuff, so that the mind finally can get to be steady enough. Okay, I'm not used to it. So here's fear, and here's your mind. Okay, typically, fear will just wipe the floor with your mind because your mind is not steady enough. But the day comes through practice, fear arises. Remember, it's not the word, it's energy. It's very alive. Okay, we're not interested in the word as much as what's happening. Okay, and the, the mindfulness is steady and strong. That's what we're developing. And it can move with the fear. And one of the things it sees is that the fear arises, it peaks, and then it starts to weaken, and then it falls away, and then it's gone. If you see that a few times, your relationship to fear changes. Oh, it's something that arises and passes away. If there's no awareness, then you identify with it, and it's as if it's forever. In those moments, it is. You know, it feels like it's forever, it's overwhelming, and moreover, it's you, or it's about to assault you. As you begin to see it, you see the whole thing is an internal thing. Now, there are certain kinds of fears that are instinctive to, say, to their intelligence. I'm not talking about that. You know, you're about to uh, fall off a cliff. No, I'm not talking. This is a kind of made in the mind, manufactured in, in the mind. Do you see what I'm getting at? So wisdom, as you begin to see that the inside is seeing the nature of of everything, of the body and of the mind. As you begin to see that the nature of the mind is that it's made up of conditions that arise and pass away and lack self, then they start to lose power and you can let them go, which takes you 
to a deeper place. I think that's as far as I'd like to go with it now. Yeah. Okay, it's all right. Yeah. I'm not saying it's unreal. Some fear is intelligence and some fear is uh, destructive. It's, it's unintelligent. It's, you wanna, we would call it neurotic fear. Yes, we're very con- all you, we're concerned with survival and security. Yes, it changes from society to society, but that need in humans is always the same. Of course. I understand. Yes, no, I would, you know, but it's not a matter of definitions. I have to speak, so I have to use definitions. It's a matter of in the moment something comes up. Look, if you're about to step off Grand Canyon and suddenly something stops you, you're not going to say, oh, this is just neurotic. He was, Larry was right, you know, and just. No, there's something that's, that's... And there's a lot of fear that comes out of thinking. That's what I said. There is a piece of intelligence. If you see that the social security system is in danger and you start uh, setting up some savings or something, that might come out of a piece of... So the fears have some intelligence in them. But often, first of all, uh, often they don't. Uh, often they're way ahead. Uh, you know, there's a, we all know, and moreover, we repeat them internally over and over and over and over and over when the actuality isn't here. Uh, and it's, it, it, uh, da- probably fear has uh, damaged the quality of life for all of us more than anything else. It, because it handicaps us. We're afraid to do certain things. Uh, it distorts our thinking, our living, uh, and so forth. So one of the big things in all meditation practice is to free yourself from fear. If not totally, I don't know how many human beings completely free themselves from fear, but it's certainly possible to do a, a good job on it. Yeah. Please. I found myself wishing for an emergency here to get out of this room. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you know this, but I have absolutely no authority whatsoever. Has that occurred to you? Nothing. I have no authority. And not only that, there are no grades, no certificates. Your, your mind is free. So what did you do? Why are you here? I mean, why did you stay? Okay, why? It would be good for you. Okay, like cod liver oil. <laughs> okay. um, the practice would be, there's nothing wrong in having that notion that my God, I hate this, I want to get out of here. The question is, can you be aware of it? See, and hear the mind uh, giving you a strong argument for leaving. Now, should the building catch fire and your mind says, my God, I want to get out of here, then listen to it. That would be wisdom. Do you see what I'm getting at? 
Okay, so clear mind is helping us more and more be able to tell as we get to know ourselves, we can see what is wise and what isn't. You can't learn that from a book, sorry. You can get some inspiration, a few hints from a book, or I hope a little bit from me, but not much. Mainly, this is first-hand research that each one of us has to do. This is not a guru-oriented tradition. I'm not against gurus, by the way, when it works, when you have a genuine guru, genuine students. But this particular approach is not. The Buddha was teaching self-reliance. He put, be a lamp unto yourself was an important part of the teaching. For me, it's important. I'm, I'm, I would like to grow up. I'd like to be what is called an adult. And I um, find the message of self-reliance a beautiful one. And I'm happy that no one can really help me. I don't know if you know that yet. Have you figured that out, that no one can really help you? Good. That's a big one. So then, it's up to numero uno, right? Yeah. We're, yes. Is that a foot or a hand? <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. But you know, right now we're on the breath, aren't we? Oh, okay. You're, uh, you're a very good move. All right. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so it's one of those times. Okay, go ahead. Yes. That's a thought too? Or, can you give me the sense of what you mean by why am I torturing? What do you mean? I'm just trying to understand what you're saying. That's right. I understand. Yes. Yes, okay. I, I think I have a better... Yeah, okay. Uh, I can't answer that, but I can uh, suggest how we would work with it using this practice. You're with the breathing, and then you lose touch with the breathing, uh, little by little, and then thoughts proliferate and they become more of them and strong ones. So it's not only thought, but probably emotions with the thought and so forth. Okay. At an early stage in practice, it's very difficult to be mindful of thoughts because thoughts are very subtle objects. They're called subtle objects. They're very refined little packages of energy. Moreover, they cast a spell on us. It's very easy. We get sucked into them and believe them. After all, a thought is just a thought. Did you know that? That's all it is. A thought is just a thought. Now that's a big one to really understand that one. Because then when thoughts come up, it's not that they're useless, but we know what they are. They're thoughts. Thoughts are ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. That's what, that's what that is. Now if you don't know that, and then you identify with it, then a whole world is created out of that thought, which you believe in, and then you're subject to be victimized by the world that you helped create because you didn't understand the nature of thought 
We call that delusion from a spiritual point of view. Okay, but now practically speaking, it, it sounds like a re- it's really thick and you're overwhelmed by it in your own words, sort of. Okay, what you can do is come back to the breath, of course, during this exercise. But if that's happening a lot and you're having a difficult time, whatever was happening to you, whatever those thoughts are about, they also express themselves in the body. And the body is much easier, it's more accessible than the realm of thought. Thought is a very subtle object, but the thought always has a tra- leaves a trace in the body. Check it, see if it's true. If you're having an angry thought, then someplace in the body will change. There'll be contraction somewhere. If you're having a loving thought, uh, it's, it's one, they're distinguishable, but they're interrelated, mind and the body. Do you see what I'm getting at? So that's, you would observe that which is much more observable, which is the bodily expression of what you're talking about. And then that can ha- help calm you down. As you breathe in and as you breathe out, uh, is that, I can't see your face, so I don't know if you're understanding me. Okay, okay. Please. First of all, how, how about your feet, legs falling asleep today? I know there's a but, but anyway, uh, yeah. are you minding it as much? Is it as much of a problem as yesterday? Yesterday it was, let's say, for 10 minutes, and then it was such pain for me that it got to be fear, and I couldn't feel the fear at all, so I don't know what it, and I experienced this today after 20 minutes, or after 35 minutes, and then I start, oh, okay, I focus on breathing, I think. Yes. Okay, so, uh, but let's go back to the other part. First of all, there are a number of you whose breath is audible. Uh, that suggests that maybe you're controlling the breath a little bit. Uh, like, you understand that this is not at all, this is not a yogic breathing, it's not pranayama at all. Pranayama is wonderful, it does something else. Actually, they do accomplish some of the same things, but, uh, so you understand that. It's just silent breathing. You Okay, good. Um, so when that's happening, are you controlling your breathing? Probably. Yeah. Okay. I focus so much. I just want to breathe and I want to have all my attention on the breath. Yes. So are you trying too hard? Probably. I got to see. Yeah. Then uh, relax a little bit. It's more, um, let the breath come to you. Don't reach out to get it. That can help people. That is, you're just, look, you are breathing. You don't need, a, don't need me to know that. You're sitting there. And just allow the breath to happen and let it come to you. It will. You don't have to go out to meet it. Just be in a state of receptivity and feel and receive each breath as it comes and goes. Now, uh, were you getting upset by the physical pain? Yes, I think there was this immense 
Ziel, den die Yes, do you think that's a, a true? Do you think that's a true fact? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, pr you're probably right. There are exceptions to every law. Yeah. Okay, I'm very sorry about that. We d but so far we never lost a yogi due to that. But I don't know, you could be the first one. You go down in the history of 2,500 years of meditation. She died on the cushion <laughs> from a stiff, stiff leg. Uh, I don't think so. But what I was getting at is if there is that fear, then if you can observe that fear, that would be very helpful. We'll, of course, we started talking about it, and we'll do more of that tomorrow. I just want to give some other people a chance. For, yeah. Whoop. We're... Uh, is it okay to stay five or ten minutes later? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think I ought to... Okay, we'll just stay till five after five. Uh, someone who hasn't spoken yet, ever, during our time here? Okay. Yes, I have... You're trying too hard. I couldn't help. I passed you. Too much will, too much will in you. What? What? Oh, okay. Um, some of it's my... F yeah, no, no, yeah. It's, some of it's my fault. Uh, in the instructions, when I said the slowing down, I don't mean that you try to slow down. It's sort of like you help it along a little bit. But I, what you were doing is like raising and then holding the leg in midair as long as you could and then coming down. It isn't... So, you, weren't the only, you weren't the only one. Others were doing it as well. Actually, the slowness, if you keep doing this, as the mind becomes more calm and concentrated, quite naturally you'll slow down. You'll find yourself walking slowly, even if you walk at a natural pace. If you get very concentrated, you'll find yourself not wanting to walk so rapidly, and then, and then just naturally slowing down, and sometimes not wanting to walk at all. In Thailand, you have a walking, you have a hut, you meditate in a hut, and alongside of the hut is a walking path, about 20 or 30 paces. And alongside of the path is like a little platform with a tin roof over it because it's very hot there. And that's for when you start walking, and sometimes you do walking meditation for hours, uh, you get very, very concentrated. And it's uh, more appropriate sometimes to go right to the sitting. So the platform's right there. You just go right there and go to the sitting. So um, I made it sound like it's something you do. And so you were all you were following the instructions. You weren't alone. Really, a lot of you were doing it, and I appreciate you trying to follow the instructions. Uh, what I mean is that it's all right to slow down, but don't work quite so hard at it. Uh, because finally, the rate at which you will slow down will happen naturally to you as you calm down. And then it's effortless. It's like dance. It's like Tai Chi. It's not different. It's just, there's no strain at all. So this, is that... One more question, if there's any, anyone who has not asked anything yet. Please. Well, I have a further question about that, because I, I found myself directing my attention to different parts of myself. Of yourself? Day. What do you mean by self? During the walking. What instance, I had my attention to what my toes were doing, mm -hmm. and then my arch, mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. And at one point I was paying attention to my balance. Mm -hmm. So I was arresting the motion, mm -hmm. or I wasn't following through because I was sensing 
Not through words, just through experience. Now, is that outside the focus? Well, you know, uh, uh, eventually, uh, that's why there's so many different ways to do walking meditation. But what I've been suggesting for us to begin with is, let's say, if you settle on the feet, um, it's not ankle or arch. Those are concepts, if they are in your mind. Maybe you're just communicating with me. Intentionally? Intentionally. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what, I'm, what I would suggest is simpler. It's just, let's say, located in the foot, which would include the arch and the toes, and just feel what's there. Now, people at the beginning will say, I don't feel anything. Fine. That's what you don't feel anything. As you practice, you'll see there's a lot of life in the foot, and you start experiencing sensations. If you do a fair amount of walking meditation, uh, especially after you've done it for a while and feel at home with it, uh, you'll feel... Uh, all kinds of uh, sensations and throbbing and t uh, pulsations, heaviness, light, you know, it's quite a, a microscopic little world going on of energy. Were you feeling that? Yes. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. But I began to be, even uh, partly as a result of this discussion, knowing what it means to stay with the subject. Yes. Yeah, you were doing that. Pardon me? You were doing that, it sounds like. I was, but then it sounded to me that I was. If I might be outside the subject to be interrupting the process, for instance, the issue of balance, I was paying attention to how the upper part of my body felt as I moved one foot up and was supporting one foot with... Okay, that, yeah, that's not necessarily outside. Was balance becoming a problem for you? No. I yeah, was you became interested in that. Yeah. Look, you, you're, uh, you, know, you have interests. We're a full human being. We're not just foot specialists, unless, you are, <laughs> unless you're a podiatrist or something. You know. uh, so it's a convenient object. But uh, just to get ahead, for example, when I do walking meditation on my own, when I'm not trying to be a, you know, instructing and all that, I don't have any particular place that I attend to anymore. I just walk. And the awareness is in the whole body. Sometimes it's in a different part of here. And it's a sense of movement. And I live inside the body with the breath. And when it's happening, there's virtually no thinking because I'm attentive to the body. To begin with, what we have found is that it's helpful to pick a smaller region and let that grow naturally. But everyone's temperament is different. Now, spending a lot of time on your balance would be a little bit outside of it, yes. So I would go back to the, the basics of what it seemed you were doing, which is fine. Okay. One more, please. Pardon? Yeah, we'll, we'll do that. You mean about sitting? Yeah, just one, one last uh, something having to do with. Yes. I know I don't. Yeah. Oh, I understand. I understand. You get mad at me anyway. If we had the time. Uh, it's my fault if you're having a, a painful sitting and the, you know, the bell isn't ringing, then it's my fault. Uh, if it's a good sitting, I'm a really nice guy. Um, look, I'll tell you why I'm doing that. Usually we teach with a fixed schedule. Um, this is an unusual group for me where I, there are a fair number of people here who are really just beginning. And then there's some of you who've been practicing for a while and there's a lot in between. And so um, I've been trying to find uh, it's not mechanical. I'm getting a sense of when, as a group, not there are many individuals this would not touch upon, we're going a little bit beyond our edge, and that's when I ring the bell. 
on the average it's been about 25 to 35 minutes. Uh, if you like, I'll do it that way. I'll just set a time. Would, would you prefer that? See, but either way you can learn. Look, if we do the, uh, both of them have problems, believe me. Okay, if we have this fixed, you know, like one hour, 45 minutes, and then you, you're loving your sitting. Oh, so peaceful, breath is like satin. Oh, I think I'll become a nun. No, you know, just, okay. Um, then when the bell rings, you'll hate me because it wasn't long enough, and it got interrupted, and so forth. Uh, there are people who come with their watches and need to look at their watch. Often we say, if you're going to do that, leave your watch in your room. Uh, because watch your mind. See, that, that would be much more valuable. Whether we time it uh, intuitively or have a fixed schedule, what's interesting is what your mind does. You're here to learn about your mind, so you can then switch that. A bad situation is a good situation. And see how you want... Uh, finitude, you know, you want to know definite limits and boundaries, and if you don't get them, you get anxious, and if you get anxious, then, you, then I'm the one who caused it, so of course I'm the bad guy. So, um, how many people would like for us to be a little more scheduled starting tomorrow? Uh, you know, we could even post it on the... Uh... See? Okay. No. No. If you f want to sit and skip the walking, you can. You want it? Yes, yeah, sure. This is not the Soviet, ex-Soviet Union. Or, no, it's fine. Yeah. Um, but for those of you who are new, I would like you to learn the sitting and walking, so you, you might want to think twice about that. But let's say in retreats, typical retreats, there are retreats where it's rigidly controlled.